0: Thank you, Mark, and the worship team. Let's give them a hand. Don't they do a great job every week? Good morning, church. My name is Ken Henley, and I'm one of the elders here at Harvest, and it's my privilege to bring you the Word of God this morning. Um, Just following up on worship here, and I always tell Mark every time I see you, it brings a smile to my face. And the reason is is he's the guy that ushers me into the presence of the Lord every Sunday morning. And uh, worshiping the Lord just melts my heart and he's the guy along with his team that brings us to that place. So uh, we're blessed to have them. Open your Bibles this morning to James chapter five, continuing our study in the book of James. We're getting close to the end, and I imagine uh, next week Pastor Ryan will maybe wrap it up. There's uh, certainly a message or two left there after the end of today, but we're going to be covering today verses 13, 14, and 15. You can read along with me. It says this, if anyone among you suffering, is anyone among you suffering, let him pray. Is anyone cheerful, let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Let's pray and then we'll get into his word. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the privilege of worshiping you today. We pray, Father, that our praise has risen into your presence as a fragrant aroma. Thank you for um, all that you are to us. Thank you for your word. And as we look into what uh, James wrote in, in the word here concerning prayer, we pray, Father, that you would impress these things upon our hearts and that it would change us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Pastor Ryan is on a, and his family are on a well-deserved vacation. I understand that they went camping this week, and I'm sure when he comes back, you'll hear more about that 60-second tent, right? It, uh, it's supposed to go up in 60 seconds, so I'm sure he'll have uh, a few stories about that along with uh, some other escapades, I'm sure. Well, if you've ever camped, um, especially tent camping, you have at least one tent story, right, or one camping disaster story. I remember back in the late 1980s, um, myself and my young family were invited by my brother and sister-in-law to go camping, and I said, yeah, we would love to, but we, we don't have a tent. Um, well, my mother-in-law got word of that, and my father-in-law, and they said, oh, well, someone gave us a tent, you're, you're welcome to use it. And I like, wow, great, I don't even have to buy a tent. This is fantastic. And uh, so I went to pick it up, and the thing was big. It was giant. I'm like, oh wow, this is gonna work out great. We're gonna have all sorts of room, right? So off to the campsite we go for the weekend. And uh, I'm all excited because I, I love the camp. Um, and we, set, we start setting this up and I'm taking it out and I'm like, there's a lot of mesh here. Like, I can see through it. And as, as I start setting this thing up, I discover that it's not a tent at all. It's a screen house. I'm like, okay, it's a screen house. I can I can make this work. I can make there's no bottom on it, right? But, you know, people sleep on the ground all the time. And so we set it set it up, and then I am finding that there's no stakes for the, you know, there's 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 string, but there's no stakes. So off to Walmart we go, and I'm I'm buying little things here and there that I need to to make this tent work, the tent, screen house, sorry. And uh so I thought, this is, this is going to be all right. There's plenty of room. Um, it's, it's, just, uh, it's just our small family, my father-in-law and mother-in-law. So uh, we uh, start going to sleep, and then I start hearing rumbling in the, in the distance. Right? Right? Why is it always like? <laughs> it's always when you're camping. So I'm like, okay, well, we've got, we've got a, a roof over our heads, and there's flaps. So I put the flaps down, and I tie it up and uh, then it starts raining. Now, we're not, we're not talking just rain here. We're talking like sheets of rain start falling. And you know, the, the flaps work on a, t- on, a, on a screen house as long as the rain is like coming straight down. But this, this is that kind of rain that, that goes sideways, right? So it's blowing now into our little home. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, we'll, we'll move towards the center. We're gonna make this work. I'll fall asleep actually and it's not, not so bad until the river comes <laughs> all of a sudden I'm like okay what is this it's not, oh, it's not me good <laughs> well the this this winding river decides to make its way through right through our screen house and we are, we're we're up in the middle of the night and it was it was terrible it was just one of those nights where uh, that drove me to prayer <laughs> In this life, we have all kinds of troubles, don't we? Some some that turn into humorous stories, but some not so humorous, right? In verse 13, it says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. In the NIV, it says, is anyone among you in trouble, right? Are you in trouble or are you troubled? This word suffering in the original language carries the idea of being afflicted or experiencing a difficulty or uh, enduring a hardship. So trials come in many shapes and sizes though, don't they? Um, Flip back to James chapter 1. In verse 2, if you'll recall, when Pastor Ryan started this series, he covered this, right? Chapter 1, verse 2, it says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Trials come in many shapes and sizes, right? That word joy there is interesting, too. How can I have joy when I'm having all of these troubles? Uh, Well, a great definition for joy... Is um, super. It's uh, supernatural, right? It's supernatural in nature, so it's supernatural joy in the purposes of God. It's taking joy in the realization that God is up to something, and that I'm not just this burden is not just happening upon me, but that God is sovereign. He knows my name. I am His child. And he has a purpose for this suffering that I'm going through. Suffering, the word is wider than the suffering of sickness, which which we will get to in a moment. Um, But the type of suffering that James is describing here are the everyday types of trials and tribulations that we go through. You'll remember Jeremiah, the prophet, he suffered opposition, right? Ezekiel suffered bereavement. He lost his wife, and he lamented about that. Hosea, marital breakdown. Just as they suffered these things, we suffer these things today. We go go through all sorts of trial. What are some types of troubles? Tensions at work, right? Who hasn't had tensions at work? We have marital tensions too. How about family difficulties? especially those involving our children, right? We are preoccupied with these things oftentimes. Perhaps you have a disability or joblessness. Maybe you're going through uh, job loss right now and you're looking for a job. Or unsaved loved ones and you're just praying for them. Troubles, trials of many kinds, or even stress or anxiety over any of the above, right? We go through these things, we suffer many of these types of trials. After September 11th, the company that I worked for went out of business, um, as did many technology companies. And uh, our family was out of work for two years. And uh, that was a time of really calling upon the Lord. It was our trial, that was our trouble at the time. Um, But somehow, God provided for our needs. So many ways we experience suffering, so many different forms of trial. Do me a favor, turn to the person next to you and tell them they have a big butt. <laughs> all right, all right, you're wondering, all right, what's, what's this, this guy's lost it, right? No. Listen, no, listen, listen, Genesis 50, 20 says, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to save many people, Right? But God, all of our trials, all of our suffering should have a but God at the end, right? We have a big God. We have a big God, and all of our suffering stories should have a but God transition. Psalm 49, their beauty shall be consumed in the grave, but God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave. Psalm 73, my flesh and heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart. And my portion forever. Romans 5 For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his love towards us, and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. John 16 33. Jesus said, In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. I see my good friends Jan and Terry Kent here this morning and they are going through a, an extended season of trial in their life. Terry's got some medical issues that are, that are, that are just lingering and lingering. And uh, I talk to them often and hear what they're going through and we're praying for them. But here's what I appreciate and praise the Lord, Lord for. Whenever I talk to them, they'll tell me what's happening for sure. But then there's always a but God. But God is faithful. But God is sustaining us. But God is doing this, doing that. But God. Does your trial, does your suffering have a, a but God transition? But God, we have a big God. Our family was jobless for two years, but God somehow allowed us to never miss a mortgage payment. He supplied all of the food that we needed. He got us through that. God, but God. It says there in 13 verse 13, it says, "Let him pray. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. How are we praying? How are we praying? Are we praying simply to be delivered? God, get me out of this. You've got to get me out of this. I can't take this. I don't want this. And you know, it's certainly right to lament like that. God, God invites us to lament. However, are we also asking God... Why am I going through this? What is your plan for my pain? Do you, do you remember the tagline for Pastor Ryan's series, sermon series that we're going through? God's plan for your pain, right? God's plan for your pain. So when, when, a, when a trial comes, right, when suffering comes, it's... it's It's perfect and it's right to ask God to remove it. Nothing wrong with that. But we also need to ask him, but God, what is your plan for my pain? What is it you're trying to accomplish in me? Let him pray. Again, back in uh, the first chapter of James, it says in verse 12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. What does that mean? To remain steadfast. That means to lean into the trial. Or to even embrace the trial. Right? So many times God has brought something into my life. And especially as I've partnered with my wife in trials and in suffering God will surprise us with a a bad test result from the doctor all right here we go again and oftentimes we've looked at each other in the eye and said all right how are we going to handle this one let's embrace it let's pray right now and ask God not only for a good result but that we would remain steadfast during this trial that we would embrace the trial and that we would inquire as to what are you trying to teach us Lord what are you trying to do in us through this trial we pray that you will remove it but even more so what are you trying to accomplish in us what are you trying to perfect in us we should lean into or embrace trials you can write this down we should respond to all life situations with prayer. We should respond to all life situations with prayer. No matter what it is, no matter how big or small, right? Do you ever say, oh, you know, the little things, God doesn't, God doesn't care about, them. I, I, I'm gonna save my prayer for the big ones. Is that, how, is that how you talk to your friends? All right? Jesus is the friend of sinners, he wants you to come to him in all things. Philippians 4, 6, and 7, we'll put it up on the screen here. It says this, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything. You know, I I looked up that word everything in the original language. You know what it means? Everything. Everything. Right? It means everything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Notably missing from that verse is that he's going to answer your prayer. right? That he's going to take away whatever, he's going to change whatever it is you bring to him. Perhaps he will, and oftentimes he does. But what what is Paul speaking to here in in this uh, passage of Scripture? He's saying that, I know the psychological effects of going through trials and the heavy burden that it is. There's no no reason to be anxious about it. Bring it to me and I'll guard your heart and I'll guard your mind while we get you through this. I'm going to guard your heart and I'm going to guard your mind. 1 Peter 5-7 also calls for us to cast all of our cares upon him. All of our cares, because he cares for you. The verse goes on in 13, uh, verse 13 there. It says, is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Cheerful has an eye, uh, carries the idea of um, going through a season of ease or a, perhaps a season of affluence. Now, before, before you think, oh, I would love to be affluent... No, that's talking about you, all right? If you're not going through a trial right now, you are, you are affluent, and I thank my brother Peter. You saw Peter and Matt up the, on the screen a little while ago. right? My brother Peter shared this with me not too long ago. He said, we're all affluent in this country. He said, let's talk about the one percenter. Well, that's kind of a popular topic in politics now, right? The one percenters. Are you a one percenter? You know what it takes to be a one percenter? In the United States, just the United States, what do you think it takes to be a one percenter? Let's, let's hear some family combined incomes. What do you think? Throw it out. How much? No one wants to go out on a limb. That's a great guess, but it's not high enough. A little higher. It's about double that. It's $450,000 a year. If you make a combined family, and, and I know not many of you are that, but here's my point. Let's talk about... Being a one percenter in the world. It's not, it's not fair to say, oh, the one percent in the United States. Let's talk about the world, right? Because we live in a global community. What do you think it takes to be a one percenter in the world globally? It's lower than you think. If you have a combined family income of $34,400 per year, congratulations, you're a one percenter. How about that? We're rich. We're affluent, most of us. Now, there's some college kids here saying, whoa, I would love to be making that much. Your time's coming. Your time's coming. Perhaps you're going through a season where you don't have a lot of trials. How's it going? Hey, you know what? Things are going pretty good right now. I, I, I have nothing to complain about. You know, that happens. It happens. What should you do? It says, sing Praise. Is anyone cheerful? Let them sing praise. I love the song that Mark chose for this morning um, where it said, Your praise will ever be on my lips. Right? That that phrase carries a whole lot more meaning when you've been through a a deep, dark, and difficult extended trial. When you come out of a trial and you're like, Living in a time of ease, in a season of ease, be cheerful. Sing praise. And praise is what? It's a form of prayer. You can write this down. Neither suffering nor ease should find us without a suitable Christian response in either prayer or song. Whether times are hard or whether times are easy, we should be running to God. John Calvin put it well when he said this, James here means that there is no time in which God does not invite him, invite us to himself. There is no time in which God does not invite us to himself. We have a God for all seasons. Titus three, five and six says this, trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding, in all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Have you ever entered a room or a, a small circle of people and not been acknowledged? It's kind of awkward, isn't it? You feel like no one even knows I'm here. or I'm, I'm a nobody to them. We taught our children from a very young age that when grandma or grandpa, or any other guest enters our house, doesn't matter what you're doing, put down the video game, put the TV on pause, come upstairs, and greet people when they come into the house. It was just an etiquette that we decided to teach them. How do you think God feels when all around you, you're, 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 you're lamenting, you're talking to other people, and you're going through this, and you're going through that, You're calling your relatives, and you never talk to God. Guess what? He's right there. He's right there in the room, and he's not being acknowledged. It says, in all your ways, acknowledge him. Let's go on to verse 14. It says, is anyone among you sick? Is anyone among you sick? This is actually a different word in the original language than that word suffering in verse 13. Uh, This word here actually means carries more of the meaning of feeble, weak, exhausted. Sometimes used um, by Paul as a spiritual weakness, but in this context, most likely referring to a physical illness. A physical illness. Um, And although there are different views on this in biblical scholars that I respect on both sides of this issue, some disagree. Some say this is talking about spiritual sickness and some say no, this is physical sickness. Um, We can agree to disagree on that and it's it's not uh, a huge issue, but the context more likely is referring here to a physical problem that now has the person in an exhausted condition. Perhaps it's been going on for a long time, and in their in their minds, and in their their uh, psychological condition is even deteriorating, because this burden has become so heavy for them. They've become feeble. They've become weak. They've become exhausted. We have physical problems, right? Caused by accidents, heart conditions, diabetes. Birth defects, Alzheimer's, cancer, Parkinson's, broken bones, MS, all these things can be um, physical conditions that are extended and then start to weigh upon us. Many of you know the story of the health of my wife Debbie in our journey through um, a trial that started um, back in late 90s Um, her story is that she was diagnosed with a condition called scleroderma at age 16 a condition that causes uh, tissue hardening and scarring and the doctors at that time told her mother that she had about five years to live but God obviously had other plans in the early 70s I met my future wife in high school youth group at our church but here was the thing I was a freshman and she was a senior. So you know how that is, right? <laughs> she really didn't give me the time of day back then, right? She was courteous to the freshie, right? She was kind. She was a kind person, but there would never be anything going on there, right? I mean, uh, at least not yet. <laughs> so she graduated, went off to Bible school, went off to uh, the mission field in Mexico for a time. And um, I, I graduated high school and went off to the Air Force. And about the time I was coming back from the Air Force, she was coming back from the mission field back to church. A lot of our friends had, had kind of scattered and went off to other churches and other states. And, and uh, we're like, oh, hi, how are you doing? And I looked at her and I said, yeah, she's looking fine. Yeah. <laughs> and she looked at me and said, Hi. But I asked her out on a date to founder, Moody's Founders Week, <laughs> if you can believe that. And uh, the, develop, the relationship developed from there. And in 1984, we got married. Want to see one of our wedding pictures? Yes. All right, here we go. Aww. There's us. Wasn't she a beautiful bride? And yes, that is my hair. <laughs> my kids tell me, hey, Dad, your, your forehead gets bigger every year. So in uh, 1994, after a period of unemployment, um, I took a job as the information technology director for Outside Magazine in Santa Fe, New Mexico. So that took us away from where we had been born and raised um, to Santa Fe, New Mexico. And uh, if you know anything about Santa Fe, uh, the elevation there in the valley is 7,000 feet. Right, you go up in the mountains; it's like 13, 14,000. But even in the valley, so um, we like to say that we lived higher than most birds fly. So uh, it's 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 a little challenging breathing there, especially when you first get there. What we didn't know is the scleroderma um, that Debbie had was beginning to take a f- uh, effect on her lungs. The scarring had be- begun, and uh, the altitude manifested itself in her saying, "I can't." I'm, I, I just find it, you know, I'm not getting used to the altitude here, so we went to the doctor and the result was she had to start sleeping with oxygen. Well, as the scarring continued, uh, nighttime oxygen turned into all-day oxygen and so she was on oxygen 24-7. Um, and it just continued to get worse and worse for the seven years that we were there. But we came home to visit family here in Chicago in the summer and she would say, you know what, I don't, I don't need this oxygen. I'm like, wow, that's, that's great. It's just the lower, alti- lower altitude is better for you. So in the year 2000, we moved back just so that she would be able to breathe without oxygen. Well, that was great for about two years, but by 2002, she was back on the oxygen again because of the, just the continued deterioration of her, um, the tissue in her lungs. So in 2004, we realized uh, it had gotten so bad that we realized that we needed to take more serious steps So I decided to look into um, a pulmonologist that was a little bit better than the doctors that we had been seeing. So we had heard that Loyola was a a great place to go. And so I I called and I just said, hey, I'm just calling out of the blue. I got online, looked at all the pulmonologists and kind of looked at their bios and I just picked one. I didn't really know who I was picking. I just picked one and I called the office. And I had, you know how it is nowadays when you try to get an appointment? How long do you wait to see a specialist? You can wait 60 days, sometimes 90 days to see a specialist these days. So I, I knew it was going to be a wait, but I was willing to wait. And so I, I got a hold of his uh, scheduler, and uh, she said, How about Tuesday? I'm like, Seriously? I'll take it. So we went and saw him. So we went and saw Dr. Garrity and sat down, and uh, he examined her. And he told us something that we probably knew was true, but hearing it come from his lips really impacted us. And he said, wow. He listened to her lungs and he said, wow. He goes, do you realize that you're in stage four lung failure? You're at the end. You're near the end. And uh, that, that really shook us up. He goes, have you ever considered a lung transplant? And we're like, we, we were always under the impression that because of her illness, she would never qualify. He goes, that's not true. We transplant scleroderma patients all the time. We're like, wow. So he said, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give this information to my nurses and they're gonna call you and they're gonna schedule all these tests. You gotta t- get tested for everything to get into a, a transplant program. They wanna make sure that if you're gonna get a new organ that you're healthy enough The rest of your body is healthy enough that we're not going to waste these lungs, so all the tests you need to go through. So, um, about a week later, Debbie gets a call and says, um, uh, from Dr. Garrity's nurse, she goes, hi, I'm calling from the lung transplant program. We're a little confused over here because we don't have, we're missing all your paperwork and all your tests. They're not here. Um, Do you know where those might be?" And and Debbie, this is like her first contact with them, she goes, I I don't know. She goes, well, where are all your test results? She goes, I haven't had any tests. She goes, wait, wait, wait a minute. You saw Dr. Garrity, and you haven't had all of these tests? She goes, do you know that Dr. Garrity is the head of the lung transplant program? She She said, no one sees Dr. Garrity. Without having gone through months of tests. And then she said this, which caused me to immediately, in my heart, raise my hands in prayers to the Lord. She said, Who do you know? <laughs> That's awesome. I said, In my heart, I said, Wow, Lord, you are awesome. But God, right? But God was paving the way for us. So she got into the lung transplant program, but now you have to wait, right? And it's an unfortunate thing when you have to wait for the death of another person in order to get an organ that you need. So long story short, we waited a couple of years while Debbie continued to deteriorate. Um, Nothing was coming. Debbie was a hard match. You have to be a blood type match and you have to be a size match. And Debbie's small frame made that very difficult. Most people getting in accidents, right, are adults and the lungs are always too big. So there was just no match coming. So over the next two years, her breathing got worse and worse and worse to the point where uh, Debbie became an invalid. And she couldn't move from that chair to that chair without someone carrying her. And uh, I had to carry her upstairs every night, put her into bed her breathing under controls because sometimes she would go into these breathing episodes where we thought she was going to have a heart attack and so those were difficult times so we came she was her her three friends um, came to visit her lifelong friends when they left they cried in the driveway they said they cried in the driveway because they knew that was the last time they would see her alive that's how far along Debbie had gotten. So, um, 4th of July weekend was coming, and I, ca- I, called, I called the hospital. I said, I don't know what to do for her anymore. We've got the oxygen cranked up as high as it will go. She's got two cannulas, one in her mouth, one in her nose with you know, two oxygen, and it's just not enough oxygen. I don't know what to do. She, they said, there's nothing we can do, but 4th of July weekend's coming up, and oftentimes there are um, multiple donors, and so there's a chance. So every night, I would get Debbie tucked into bed, and I would run to the Psalms. And I was reading through Psalm 1, through Psalm 17, a psalm and I just looking for something to hold on to as I was in my distress, as I was crying out to God, often shedding tears in the carpet. God would give me something every single night. God, this is hard. This is hard. This is terrible. I'm going to lose her. But God, every day, would give me something from one of those psalms. Because David himself was going through such tremendous trial, right? But he always ended his lament with, But God, but God is faithful. But God is my deliverer. And I would grab onto that, and I would share that with Debbie in the morning. But we went through the entire 4th of July weekend. July 4th was on a Monday, so we went through Saturday, Sunday, Monday, no call from the hospital nothing monday night i was totally dejected we both were because the weekend had come and gone now and uh, no call nothing and i knew that it was over i had already been planning her funeral in my head that night god gave me psalm 18 I'd like to just share a little bit of it with you. It's a long psalm. It's 50 verses, so I'm just going to read you some highlights. But that night, when I saw the end was near, David starts this new psalm, which I had not read recently. He said, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge. My shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I'm saved from my enemies. And I thought, I know what my enemy is right now. The cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. The next half of this verse, the tone changes. It says, from his temple, he heard my voice. And my cry to him reached his ears. Verse 7, then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations off of the mountains tumbled and quaked because he was angry. And I realized later, he was angry because he doesn't like to see his children suffer. And he, and he loves it, he bursts from heaven. The Psalm goes out to say, when it's time to rescue, it's time to rescue. And I read on and on how God rescued David. I finished the Psalm where David's rejoicing for being delivered and I said, God, I can't relate to this. I said, this is great for David, but what about me? I haven't been rescued. Little did we know that the next morning after I had, Karen and I had gone to work, Debbie received a call from Loyola and they said, how fast can you get to the hospital? We have a pair of lungs for you. I can't begin to itemize the God stories that happened that day. But suffice it to say say that she received her lung transplant that very morning and God came through. We went through a terrible, terrible, tremendous trial, but God, right, but God delivered. But here's the thing. He doesn't always heal like that, but he did in this case for which we are... Forever, forever grateful to him, but I am even more grateful for how God walked with us through that trial. What God taught us through that trial is invaluable. The intimacy that both Debbie and I learned, the intimacy that we gained in Christ that I believe you can get no other way except To go through a trial like that, I wouldn't trade it for anything. But God, is anyone among you sick? Let him pray. It says in 14, continuing on, let him call for the elders of the church. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. How do we call on the elders? Well, it was different back in James time, right? They didn't, have, they didn't have texting. Hey, so-and-so sick, did you hear? You gotta get over there right away. They didn't have email, they didn't have telephones, right? So when you were sick, you had to call the elders, right? So now we have a little bit more of an efficient system. Um, we have our small groups, right? We have our small groups, we have small group members, that gather around the sick and notify the church, right? Small group leaders notify their flock leaders and the pastors, hey, so-and-so is sick, and we go to them, right? And that's how we call upon the elders. Now, if you're not in a small group, you might have to pick up the phone. Call the elders. Have them pray over you. Oftentimes, we have prayer up here. Almost every Sunday, we have prayer up here, and oftentimes, there is an elder among them. You can come up. But the idea here is that you're so sick that you probably can't come to church, right? But that should not prevent you from coming to the elders to pray. Who are the elders? Right, well, an elder is any, we would consider any pastor here to be um, an elder in that category. And then there are myself, and then there's three other men, uh, Mike Mike and Rich, who are elders. Call the church. Stop by the church for prayer. Call on them. why can't I just write my prayer request in the Friendship Register? You can certainly do that. And we see those, and you get prayed for. But there's something about doing what God asks you to do, I believe, that that step of faith right, is going to be, on, is going to, going to be honored by God. Can God answer my prayer if I fr- write it in the Friendship Register? Absolutely. Absolutely. But if you're going to through an extended period of physical... Uh, Strife, right? Especially if it's exhausting you and it's weighing heavy on you, call on the elders. It says, and let them pray over him. Continuing in fourteen, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. We'll get back to the oil in a second, but let's talk about that phrase in the name of the Lord. What does that mean? This is where the power resides. The power does not reside in the oil. There's nothing special about the oil. It says in the name of the Lord. I love the song that the other song that mark chose this morning it said the sick are healed and the dead are raised at the sound of your great name your great name it's his name that carries the power the name of the lord is a phrase throughout scripture what does this mean well jesus said if you pray anything in my name it will be done whatsoever you ask in my name that will the father do And the Old Testament says the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and are saved. And in Philippians it says that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. There's power in the name of the Lord, so it's in that name we pray. And we always, right, we often end our prayers in Jesus' name, amen, right? That's not like over and out. Right? That's not what that is. All right. We say that in Jesus' name because that's the power of Jesus' name that carries the power, right? It's where the power lies. Here's a question: Is God obligated to heal, always obligated to heal us when we ask him to? Is God obligated? Well, here's an interesting verse. We'll throw this up on the screen. First John 5, 14 and 15 says, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything. According to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. Or in other words, we know that he holds the requests in his hands. We know that he knows about it. And he's either going to answer that prayer. By the way, did you know that no is an answer? All right? Just because you're not getting a yes doesn't mean it's been answered. It has not been answered, no is an answer, and also wait is an answer. But more likely, when we present that request to him, he's gonna say, now I have the power I need. Not that God needs power, but he, got, he has in the angelic realm in the spirit, in the, in the spiritual realm where there is a battle. He goes, I have what I need to get you through this trial. Notice five things here in James 5, 14. It says the elders are called to the sick person, right? It's not always absolutely necessary, but that's what he's saying here. Number two, the elders do all the praying, right? The elders do all the praying. The person is worn out or exhausted or perhaps bedridden even. And it's the, notice it's the faith of the prayer, right? The faith of the elders that's effectual, the faith of the elders. And number five, the elders pray over the person as one confined or in a prone position. I don't think that we take advantage of this as often as we should. Call on the elders to pray for you. Why? Are the elders empowered with special powers to heal? No. But it's a step of faith on your part in that you're obeying God's word. Right? And I believe God's going to honor that. And the elders are obeying God too in that they're following what God has passed down, the authority from God to the elders, to you in prayer. As the elders pray, they also anoint the sick person in order to symbolize, get that, symbolize that the person is being set apart for God's special attention and care. The oil is a symbol of being set apart. We we believe this is biblical and appropriate for today. I found this... In one commentary, it says, oil was widely used in the ancient world, both as a skin conditioner and a medicine. A New Testament example is in Luke 10, which describes the Good Samaritan as coming to the aid of the man who has been beaten and robbed. It says, he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Ancient sources testify to the usefulness of oil in curing everything from toothache to paralysis, The famous second century physician Galen recommended oil as the best of all remedies for paralysis. Considering this background, we might suppose that James urging the elders to come to the bedside of the sick armed with both spiritual and natural resources, or in other words, prayer and medicine. We don't pray and say, you don't have to go to the doctor. No, we pray and we go, and God can use this medicine also. Both are administered with the Lord's authority and both together can be used by him in healing the sick. So we say that anointing with oil is a physical action with symbolic significance. Let's go on to verse 15. It says, and the prayer of faith will save, that word means make them well, it will save the one who is sick, Remember, faint, weary, weak, or worn out, and the Lord will raise him up. When it says make him well, right, it doesn't promise instantaneous physical wellness. All right? Remember, the person is weary, worn out, exhausted. What God's anointing and the prayer of the elders is supposed to do is refresh them, right? Bring God's refreshness back into their soul to help them. remain steadfast under trial and the Lord will raise him up make him whole again second Corinthians 12 um, is where Paul speaks to his thorn in the flesh remember that one saying three times I pleaded with the Lord three times to take it away from me this is more, most likely a physical condition that he had which really was burdening him in some way To the point where he pleaded with the Lord. Lord, I can't take this. Please take it away. Did God heal him? No, he did not. What did God say to him, though? He said, my power is made perfect in weakness. My grace is sufficient for you. What I'm going to give you right now is going to be sufficient to get you through this. And what you're going to learn through this is going to teach you power. It's going to give you power in ministry. How many people want the power of God in their life? All right? Wow, it's great to see so many hands up. Pray for suffering. All right? Because it's through suffering, right, that God is going to display power in your life. It's through a trial that God's going to display power in your life. Philippians 3:10. I think we have that. Is that one that we have for the screen? Yes. Philippians 3:10 says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings becoming like him in his death. What was he like in his death? He was heading to it. He was heading towards it. He knew he he wanted to do it, all right? This is where the power comes the power of the resurrection. You're like, man, I, I'm missing the power in my life. Share in the sufferings. Now, sufferings are going to come, but it's how, it's how you and the Lord treat that season of suffering that is going to determine the power of God. And back in verse 15, it says, and if he has committed any sins, he will be forgiven. The Bible does not teach that every sickness is the result of some sort of ongoing sin. However, it does teach that some sickness comes by way of chastising or warning. Think of the rebellion of Jonah. God said, I want you to go to Nineveh. And God said, I don't like, I don't like Ninevites. Jews don't like Ninevites. They're prejudiced against Ninevites. And so he headed in the opposite direction in rebellion. And What, what did God do? God had to chastise him James encourages the sick person to, first of all, deal with any potential spiritual causes of illness that they may be experiencing. James is pointing a lot of those out as we've gone through the book of James. In chapter 2, he talks about favoritism. In chapter 3, we talk about inappropriate use of the tongue. for fighting and quarreling. Now, we're not saying that if you sin in these ways, physical, physical uh, illness... A way of punishment is going to come. But we're talking about it's been pointed out in your life, and you're saying, No, I'm not going to stop that, God. In other words, you're poking your finger in the eye of God, all right? Then you, you might become sick, and it's a possibility. As Christians, we cannot continue to live deliberately out of the will of God without reaping what we sow. Um, so sometimes God enlists us in, some, in, in suffering in that way. But more often, it's God saying, there's something I want to teach you. There's something I want to work out of your life. There's something I want to grow in you. That's why suffering comes into our lives. So here are kind of the main points of what what this passage is um, teaching us. Number one, deal with suffering and sickness by intercession with God. And when necessary, call on the elders to pray. Take advantage of that. Number two, sometimes sin is a direct cause of suffering or sickness, but more often God is cultivating steadfastness and perfecting some area in our life. James uh, 1, 2 through 4 says this. says this. We have it? Yep. We covered this in lesson one. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. You know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete and lacking nothing. And lastly, number three, we've learned that in all situations, prayer proves powerful. I'm looking forward to the prayer night coming up in a few weeks. God calls us to prayer, prayer is one of our pillars, um, and we need to uh, take advantage of that because. The power in our life, the power in our church, the power of the gospel reaching our community is only going to come through prayer. So I'd encourage you to start praying in these ways, and uh, I hope that through them you can grow in your intimacy with Christ. Let's pray.